Welcome back to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic and creator and host of Behind the Lens. You can also find my interviews, reviews, and columns at various print and online publications around the globe. Uh, but every Monday, you can find me right here on Adrenaline Radio at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. So welcome, welcome to Behind the Lens. We were off last week since... I don't know why the station owners decided to take a holiday for the 4th of July, but we are now back with no more holidays until next year, I hope. Brian, are you there? Yeah, let me check. Wait a minute. Brian, I want to say at least say hello to you. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Before you, you told me about holidays. Uh, well, we're not closed Halloween. We're fall- we have a Monday show Halloween. But there's no reason to close the studio. No, 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 no. We celebrate Halloween. Yeah, we're gonna. I'm gonna come dressed up as the Droog from A Clockwork Orange, which I never get to do. So, well, now you're gonna get to do it. Yeah, I'm gonna get to do that. And then in November, we barely miss Thanksgiving, and then we get the day after Christmas on uh, the Monday show for December. We get what? 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 Christmas is Sunday. Yeah, Christmas is a Sunday this year. Oh, good. Twenty fifth. So we'll be the. So we'll be here for Boxing Day. Yeah, we'll be here. Uh, Post Christmas, yeah, so, Boxing yeah, Day. There's no reason. Uh, so min- we, minus illnesses from Brian. Yeah, uh, I don't think there's any reason why I shouldn't be here. At well, least. <laughs> good. You better be here, my partner in crime. Yeah, so I'm, I'll be here. So it, yeah, that's a, it's a weird day that we took off Fourth of July. Well, you know, in the Elias family, in sixty years of broadcasting, you don't take holiday. There is no such thing as a holiday. But you know, other people, I, I get it. I understand. They want to revel. But anyway, uh, we are happy to be here. We have an exciting show for you today. I'm very, very thrilled with my one guest who's going to be calling in live at 1115, Mitchell Musso. I have watched Mitchell grow up on television. Uh, Most of you know him from Hannah Montana. Uh, And his character of Oliver. So... We are in for a treat. I was, I, and I want to give a huge shout out and thank you to Colin and Karina uh, for making this happen today. It's very exciting, and I know all of Mitchell's fans, they've already been tweeting up a storm about the appearance. So listen, and just remember, guys, you know, you'll be able to get the broadcast. It'll be on uh, iTunes podcast tomorrow, and it should be up sometime later tonight on my website, Movie Shark DeBlore, plus it'll be on the AdrenalineRadio.com website as well. So you can listen to Mitchell to your heart's content. And we do a two-camera video every week uh, with post, uh, post, uh, post-production post editing where we insert images and pictures and all kinds of cool stuff. And all of that uh, is done by our trusty editor, Lydia, um, who defected and moved across the country. So she's not here live. Hi, Lydia. <laughs> And we also have joining us today, Greg Caruso, documentary filmmaker with his first uh, feature-length doc, Making the American Man. Very fascinating subject matter that talks about uh, manufacturing in the United States, but specifically the history of manufacturing as it relates to men's clothing and what has transpired in the past, say, five to eight years with menswear and the fact of you want sustainability and durability of goods as opposed to just off the rack go and it's gone in 30 days because it's fallen apart. Uh, so we're going to hear uh, from Greg talking about his documentary, which has some exciting interviews, very insightful interviews with some of these small mom and pop companies 
in the United States that proudly display the Made in the USA label. So, and we've got a bunch of audio exclusives coming up. My interview with Matt Ross and Captain Fantastic. Uh, He's the writer-director. Captain Fantastic is a fantastic movie. And yes, ladies, you get a full frontal of Viggo Mortensen in it. But we're going to talk about that in a minute. Right now, Brian, we, we are two weeks behind now. This is... This is traumatizing. Oh, you kind of threw me a loop there. I can't uh, follow that breaking news that you just gave about the frontal. (laughs) You know, nudity there. Okay, well, I'll give you more of a setup then, you know. I'll, I'll preface it with what's happening on Star Wars, on Lego Star Wars today, the Freemakers, right now airing, if it's not already aired on Disney XD, Luke and Leia make the Lego Luke and Leia make an appearance on that show. Yeah, I saw a still for it on your website. Actually, you posted about it a couple yes, of days ago. Yeah, I did. That's exciting. But staying on the Star Wars subject, and it you gave you time to catch your breath. Yeah, to not faint in here. Uh, Star Wars Episode Eight. <laughs> oh, we are so close. Five hundred and twenty-one days, twelve hours, fifty-four minutes, and as soon as I'm done speaking this sentence, we should be about seven seconds closer to the film. <gasps> But, 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 I was excited to see this one. This one is getting a little bit more closer. Mm-hmm. Rogue One, a Star Wars story, opens up in theaters around you. 157 days, 12 hours, 53 minutes to go till that one. It's almost as long as waiting for football to come back. That's less than six months. That is close. And hopefully uh, more stuff starts coming out, little teases. I mean, the biggest tease that came out a couple of weeks, I don't know if we were here to talk. Yeah, we were here to talk about it. Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. It's going to make an appearance in the film. Uh, I got the Entertainment Weekly spread. On the Rogue One, which was fabulous. And I don't normally rave about Entertainment Weekly, but that was an excellent spread that they did. Yeah, so I'm hoping for some great, you know, some new merchandise. Anything Darth Vader, I'm in. Anything Star Wars, I'm buying. And, And of course, you're always down at Disneyland, too. Yes, I'm always present at Disneyland uh, because I have my pass. So you may see things down there before... Outsiders see them. Yeah, well, all the people that are there also. You know, actually, interestingly enough, I was walking uh, for people who don't know the park layout. They closed down Thunder Ranch, which used to house you know Peng Zoo and an all you can eat barbecue uh, pit. That's all closed. And if when you're walking by Splash Mountain, when you're walking, there's a little hill that you go before you descend into where the Mini the Pooh rides at. Mm-hmm. You can see now visible, which kind of. You know, Walt Disney was trying to avoid when he first started Disneyland. Now you can see the parking structure, the Mickey and Friends mm-hmm. parking structure from from the park itself. But you can also see the construction for Star Wars Land. And that's exciting. It's just a big old hole right now, but that's the foundation, obviously. And hopefully within, you know, a couple months you start seeing a little bit more because they can't hide what they're doing because of this no. little hill. So you can see, you know, you, you I, I watch people look through the holes mm-hmm. to see what's in there. But, yeah, it, you can see everything from, from one side of the park. So that's exciting. I ho- hopefully that opens and up And, of soon. course, once Star Wars Land opens, we won't see the Mickey and Friends parking structure either. No, hopefully they cover it up with a, with a, a tree or something the way they do everything else. Because well, it kind of throws you out for a loop how close Well, I'm sure that with Star Wars Land, things will be going up. There will be height. So yeah. it will block. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I can't wait for this to open up. So that that's exciting. So speaking of Star Wars, that hopefully that op- that opens up by the time eight, Episode 8 comes out. So Well, no. Isn't it supposed to open in 2017? Yeah. What time? Yeah. The same. The, no, the park. 
Yes. Oh, yeah. Episode same time eight. as episode eight. Yeah. I'm so excited thinking Rogue One in less than six months. Then. Yeah, no, Rogue One's opening up this year, but no, episode eight should. Uh, hopefully, they correlate between the park and, and the release of the film. That'd be fun. That that will just set the world on fire. Yeah. And hopefully the stock. And my wallet. Uh, and your, yes, and your wallet. And your wallet. And my walking shoes. Well, you know, speaking of wallets and walking shoes, that's a very good lead-in. Captain Fantastic and Viggo Mortensen and his full frontal. Captain Fantastic just opened in theaters on Friday, written, uh, written and directed by Matt Ross. It is an incredibly well-done movie. One of my favorite features of the movie is the costuming. We'll hear about that a little later in the show. Um, Courtney Hoffman, you may all remember Courtney Hoffman, who did such a fabulous job on The Hateful Eight. And she does the costumes in this film as well. And Matt has nothing but glowing things to say about Courtney's work. And as many of you heard here uh, from my interview with her, you know, she, she calls herself a treasure hunter. Uh, when she's putting together costumes and wardrobes for a film. And Captain Fantastic really showcases Courtney's treasure hunting abilities uh, for what she designs. But before we and, and those designs you see on all the movie posters right now uh, and the trailers, uh, Viggo Mortensen's bright red suit and then all, this very eclectic, colorful palette that looks very 60s hippie-esque. Um, that is courtesy of Courtney Hoffman. But let's talk a little bit about Captain Fantastic. It's about a family. They are a survivalist family. They live up in the Pacific Northwest in their very own commune. Um, there is an, the mother is ill, and she passes away. And events turn where the father and his six children, um, yeah, I know, it sounds like Sound of Music, but they had seven kids, so... Uh, they have to make a decision. Do they go and face his in-laws who can't stand him in order to fulfill his deceased wife's wishes and to expose his children to the outside world? Because as the script, as the script develops and as the dialogue unfolds, this is the life that the children have always known, that the parents had decided to leave the rat race of society and raise their children in this completely survivalist method in teepees with growing their own gardens, uh, smoking their own food, catching, hunting, uh, and to watch it all unfold is, is incredible. So I had to ask Matt, and this is also his directorial debut, um, about what was the decision? What was his thinking? Did he intend to direct this when he was writing the script? It didn't come through commercials or videos, music videos, so I always, from the beginning, wrote to direct. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, there are many people in Los Angeles who make a living as a writer, and in fact, as our business is moving away from original material more and more, yeah. and everything has to be based on a toy or a candy bar or whatever before they'll make it, um, your job frequently as a writer is adapting, uh, and... I wanted not to do that if I could, and I wanted to tell my own stories, and I, 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 I'm glad you have that reaction, because I feel like I've, writ, I've spent a lot of my life writing, and we all get better at what we do the more you do it, you teach mm -hmm. yourself by doing, and I've spent a lot of time writing, and I haven't, I've directed a lot of short films and only one other feature, so I feel like my writing and directing skills are, are not quite in balance. I feel like I, I sp I've spent more time just hour-wise writing than mm -hmm. I'm directing. 
and but my intention was always to direct it. I, I you know, I, I, years ago, I, George Clooney said about something that he was going to do. Uh, I don't want anyone else to. F- <laughs> and I felt like, well, that's true. You yeah. know, it's, it's absolutely right. If I, I mean, I'm in a, if I gave it to you to direct, you would make a bunch of mistakes that are that would be um, uh, that, that are your mistakes. And if I'm going to make one, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to make a bunch of mistakes that are will be my mistakes. And I would rather be the one making the mistakes because we all make mistakes. <laughs> it is. You know, it's interesting to hear that from Matt because. You know, Michael David Lynch has been on the show several times now. In his first ventures, he did everything himself. Uh, and, you know, and he had his own journey going from doing everything himself to collaboration. And that's exactly what Matt expounds upon is collaborating. On this particular subject, one of the things that's so challenging about directing a film is that it's a collaborative effort, you know, and that it's a collective. I mean, I made a short film once where there was one other actor. No, there was two actors, but mainly one. I wrote it. I photographed it. I did the lighting. I directed it. I, I, uh, did, I did the camera work. I did the sound. I edited it. I did the color correction. My brother did the music. So I did everything. Including load the equipment in and out, did the set design, everything. It, it was it was a mind-bogglingly difficult uh, endeavor mm-hmm. for a short film, and you cannot do everything yourself. You cannot. You need a bunch of craftspeople and artists and artisans right. to help you. And they have this document that you all decide you're going to do. They, they've all decided either for money or for art. They decided mm-hmm. they're going to do this, and you all get together and. You know, as a director, you're hopefully hiring people who are better at their job than you would be doing their job, and then they begin to add to the conversation. And so I say, well, I think there should be a lemon in the glass. And you say, well, no, what if it's this, that, or the other? And all? Oh, that's a better idea than I had. Thank you. And the, the narrative or the film starts to bend and grow in different ways. So, And, you know, when Matt was referencing my reaction to the film... My initial reaction to the film was intelligent. That is the first word that came to mind with the subject matter, with the script, with the dialogue, quickly followed by humor and heart and culminating in beautiful storytelling on every level. And, you know, as he's saying, collaboration does breed better storytelling. And one of the key collaborators is his cinematographer. And... That's a very long clip. So I think to be safe, Brian, since Mitchell should be calling in momentarily, we're going to take a short break. We'll come back. Hopefully we'll have Mitchell Musso on the line, and then we'll pick up more with Matt Ross and Captain Fantastic later in the show. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Brian. And this is DJ Harris. And we are the hosts of the Nothing In Particular podcast show. Live almost every Monday at 5 p.m. Where we discuss comic books, video games, movies, box office reviews, anything in the news. You name it. It's Nothing In Particular. And sometimes we'll convince somebody to come in studio with us. And those people include artists, writers, directors, musicians, social workers, you name it. So that's almost every Monday at 5 p.m. Nothing, Nothing In, in particular, particular podcast show. No, I'm not doing that. Yeah, come no, on. I told you one no, it's, it's awesome. I've got to find another way to end this commercial. Yeah, well, this is perfect. I told and we are back um we're not connected yet yes no okay but before before we uh, i bring mitchell on live i just want to say 
That is one great commercial for your podcast, Brian. Thank you. Which, yes, at 5 o'clock today, people, you can tune into AdrenalineRadio.com and you can hear Nothing in Particular podcast with Brian Leone. Thank you for the plug. And yeah, that commercial is pretty funny to I me. I love it. It's great. All right, now, hello, Mitchell Musso. Hey. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm like rushing around. Uh, i got to be on a plane here in the next... Uh, couple hours so oh my god running around well i am so thrilled that you could find time to talk to all of us here behind the lens i know my twitter feeds have been just lighting up with all of your fans that were so excited you'd be calling in oh heck yeah all right you have an incredible fan base mitchell i have an incredible fan base you're telling me oh my god and they have i been, love them they have been with you through everything Thick and thin, I know. Well, and something that they're absolutely going to love seeing, I am in love with Character Z, your new film. Oh, really? Oh, my. It is absolutely charming. There's some. Oh, all right. There's some goofiness there, but it yeah, is so charming. Sure. It is a perfect family film for the summer. Yeah, exactly. That was, the, that was what we were shooting for. It was just fun and... and uh, uh, summer flick for the family. I mean, it is, and you as a character of Tucker, so so wonderfully portrayed. Well, I really do appreciate that. You know, it's not, it wasn't too difficult uh, uh, finding my character because he just, you know, is a, a artsy, creative type who loves amusement parks and wants to develop. You know, roller coasters and and uh, I mean the whole film was shot at amusement parks. You know, it, it was it was pretty much fun the whole time. Uh, the cast is awesome. Uh, my little brother plays one of my best friends. One of my actual best friends, Miles, plays my best friend. I mean, we couldn't have had more fun and the chemistry just perfect every well, day on set. And you know, tell tell your fans out there what the what the premise of Character Z is. Uh, well, the, the movie, it's really about Tucker, uh, finding himself, uh, uh, and trying to make something of his life. And what he really wants to do is, is develop and design roller coasters and rides and not just the ride, but the actual, you know, not just the physical, uh, but the emotion behind it, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that minute and a half, two minutes that take you away from, uh, the world and connects you with, uh, the roller coaster or the ride of, you know, the showmanship. It's not just um, how many flips I can put into the thing. He really wants to show, uh, you know, to tell you a story. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really just Tucker finding himself. Uh, there is a love interest, but it's, it's not really revolved around the love interest. It's no. revolved around these three boys uh, getting into a little bit of trouble. Uh, there's a bad guy. Uh, uh, I don't really want to ruin the movie. For no, that's it. Yeah, we don't do it's spoilers. It's got a great premise. And, of course, you get to wear a kangaroo suit and be Hoppy the Kangaroo. Oh, my gosh, you're telling me. I would like to that hear, was... you know, I, I know actors go to great lengths, and you did a lot of a lot of pratfalls and stunts and crazy stuff when you did Hannah Montana. But that is nothing compared to having to be inside a full-body kangaroo suit shooting a film. No, I mean, absolutely. You know, it from the get-go, a lot of my comedy and my chops were developed through uh, physical comedy. And whether that was throwing myself off the beach pier at Rico's shack in Hannah, Montana, to 
uh, wearing that chicken suit for Hatching Beat. I mean, I'd already, I already kind of knew what I signed up for when they told me I was going to be in this, uh, in this costume. And I, and I was fine with that. I thought, yeah, well, I've done that before. Uh, it is Florida, and it's outside, so it's obviously <laughs> going to be really, really hot. But you know what? Miles and Mark have to do it, too, so whatever. I'll do it. Um, and it turns out I was pretty good at it. You know, I jumped right in there, and I, was, uh, I went into full mascot mode. Well, I have to say, you are absolutely enchanting as Hoppy the Kangaroo. Oh, thank you. I have to say, you know, one of, my most, one of my favorite scenes in the film is when Hoppy meets Graham Edge of the Moody Blues. Oh, yeah, can you believe we got him? How strange. How I mean, in- it's so crazy how we got all these people in this film. It, it was an awesome, awesome cast. Your right? cast is great. I mean, I mean, you've got the cameo from Graham, but also you've got Ken Osmond, the original bad boy next door, you know, right. Eddie Haskell from Leave it to Beaver. Eddie Haskell from Leave it to Beaver. And how much more wholesome than Leave it to Beaver as a legacy can you get to bring into your film? I mean, real, real talk. And... Also, not to mention, one of the nicer guys uh, I've ever met. He's, I mean, he's just a really down-to-earth guy, uh, sweet, spent, I mean, all of his time, not a minute away from everybody. Uh, everybody was really about building relationships on this set, and everybody got really close, and that's kind of what, what I love to do in a movie. You know, you, you put in all these random people, and it's all awkward, and they develop these relationships, and you create a family. And that's kind of what we do. Now, how involved were you involved with John in the script process at all? Or yeah, I was involved from the very, very beginning when yeah. we started our Kickstarter and our Indiegogo. Uh, from the script was the script was a lot was already written, and a lot of um, the cast was already cast. Uh, but I did have reign, and I did have say over uh, uh, things that were. Uh, said whether that was lines or the characters to say, is this guy better for this character? Is this guy, you know, uh, better for Jerry? Uh, which was nice, you know, because John just trusted me. He said, you've been doing this forever. What do you think? Uh, and it's just kind of a mutual respect between me and John. And we had a blast uh, and we worked very well together. Now- Everything he said I thought was great. Everything I said he thought was great. So it was just a keep moving days. Well, and keep moving is what you've been doing with your career. I mean, you start out very early on. You have a very small part in Secondhand Lions. Uh-huh. I mean, you can't do much better. you got Michael Caine, Robert Duvall. Yeah, Robert, yeah. You start with them. You go through, you're on a successful, you know, TV, you know, sitcom, you know, family sitcom for a while. Mm-hmm. You've done some movies. You've started transition. You've done a lot of voice work. Your work on Phineas and Ferb is great. I mean, it's so seasoned from from that to Monster House, which was just a huge feature film, with, you know, produced in a uh, Steven Spielberg film, mm-hmm. to one of the bigger, bigger uh, kids' uh, family TV shows, to shooting independent films. I mean, I've, I've done it all, and um, I love what I do, and I'm so grateful to uh, be able to... To, to be seasoned, to try different things, and, and to keep doing what I love to do, and people love watching what I do. And, I mean, I'm just so thankful to God every single day that I'm able to do that. Uh, and you guys love it, and, and that's what this is all for, you know. Well, and, you know, what's so great is, you know, over the years we, we've seen the train wrecks, we've heard the horror stories, 
about actors when they're acting when they're younger and the transition when they're trying to move into older roles, more adult roles. You seem to have been one who has made it through the transition sensibly, responsibly, and intelligently taking each step at a time without all the pitfalls that have... There was very many moments in my career where I thought, okay, I'm just going to take my clothes off and take a picture and say, here you go, and get some big publicity about it. And I said, you know what? It's not, it's not about the... the uh, it's not about the conflict. It's not about being in tabloids. It's not about... That's not what I am. You know, as a, I just love to act. Uh, I don't want to be a part of the gossip. I don't want to mess up. I have definitely wrecked a few trains in my life, in my own, in my own life. But at the end of the day, you, you, you are a child, and you're a teen, and you're a young adult, and you, you realize your mistakes, and you fix them, and you realize what's more important. And I'm just happy to be where I am right now. And what are you looking for now in terms of film roles? Do you see yourself continuing to act? Are you trying to look into more adult fare now? Well, I mean, I, I know my fans want me to go back to TV, and, and I yeah. love television. I've always loved television. I uh, obviously love making movies, and being a movie star uh, is awesome. But like I said, it, when a good part comes, that's when I jump on it. And I come alive. You know, uh, if it's not the right part, I won't come alive. I don't shine like I do when it's something that I genuinely love. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, you genuinely love the part of Tucker and characters. Yeah, it was, it was just something that I knew uh, would hit home. And uh, I had shot a horror film and a drama in between uh, my television uh, being on Disney. And I thought, you know what, this is so much close to home and what I'm used to and the physical comedy and it's goofy. And I was like, I'll just take a breather. I'm going to shoot this and just have fun because that's really what this was about. Well, you know, if you can't have fun when you go to work, the heck with it. Oh gosh. Yeah. there's no reason that's you. You have to love what you do and you have to enjoy it. You know, I agree. Now, do you see yourself stepping behind the camera? Uh, yeah, of course I do. Absolutely. But there's still, there's still a lot that I have to do and a lot that I have to learn uh, because when I do make that move, I want it to be incredible because I don't, I don't want to touch anything unless I know it's going to be good and I know that there's great people behind it. Uh, so there's still a lot of, of uh, acting stuff that I want to do and producing stuff that I want to do before I really uh, touch the camera and put something out. Now, have you started jumping into the producing arena yet? Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, the last three films I've, I've shot, I was a, you know, a producer on, uh, I, you know, not necessarily like I had, like I was able to make all these calls because there's so many people involved in a film, yeah. you know, but, uh, obviously there for the meetings and there to see what they were doing, uh, where they were going to sell it, where we were going to launch it, the marketing schemes. I, I want to learn it all, you know, it's the business that I'm involved in and I love it. So I obviously want to learn every aspect and everybody's job. Uh, because then when I walk on set, I can say, this is wrong or this is right. You're doing a good job. You're doing a bad job. Um, and that's the goal. And, of course, it will also enable you when, you know, when you're looking at a script and you see the people that are going to be involved in something, it will allow you to make a more informed decision as to whether you should, should even take sure. the Sure. Is this going to work? Is this going to be super stressful? Can we shoot all this in one day? Uh, I mean, there's just so much that's involved when you're making a film and scheduling and and people, and it, it, it's a lot. 
But like you said, you got to love what you do because that's why you get up in the morning and go to work. So now, now that everybody can watch characters all summer long, are you working on anything else right now, or is there anything else on your plate that's coming up? There's a couple things in the mix that I can't really talk about, but yes, I, I will always be working. You know, this is this is my business. This is what I do. Uh, you couldn't take it from me. <laughs> so, before I let you go here, if you had to tell all of your fans out there one reason to go see characters, what would it be? One reason to go see characters. Mm-hmm. Either in the theater or on, uh, on demand I, and Netflix. You want to know why? Because I miss being able to, I miss performing for all of them. I miss showing myself to them because I have kind of been off the radar these, uh, the past year or two. Um, and, and the things I've been working on have taken a long time to put out. So this was really special that tomorrow they're able to see a full-length film uh, of me doing my thing. Oh God! Well, Mitchell, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us today. I hope that I hope that you will come back on the show again in the future. Absolutely! Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, and have a good. And tell all the fans I love them, and thank you so much for the support. And uh, and I will forever be grateful, and forever keep doing my thing. Oh, you better, or I'm going to come and hunt you down. Oh, you wouldn't have to. <laughs> Thanks so much, Mitchell. Bye right, bye. And that was. Mitchell Musso, Character Z, tomorrow is available. Uh, I think it's on all the VOD Netflix uh, platforms. I'm not 100% sure because nobody gave me that information. Um, but now we are going to change change it up here and welcome the wonderful director and producer, Greg Caruso. Hi, Greg. How you doing? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, I am thrilled. Making making the American man. I had no idea what to expect with this. This is not really, not really your mainstream documentary, shall we say? No, no, it's not. <laughs> Where do you? What led you to making the American man? I think um, I go to my father and and my paternal grandfather, uh, my papa. Um, I, I think of them as gentlemen and they carry themselves with pride and respect, whether that's the way they dress or treat people. And I saw a void, I guess, in my own generation and especially in Los Angeles of how people pre- pre- presented themselves. Um, but also I guess the way they, uh, they acted. And, um, I also saw a void of American made good. I kept seeing labels with made in China and other countries and, I wanted to explore um, if this really is coming back. And there were several companies I was interested in, and we started cold calling them and finally compiled a list of 35 companies or so that we ended up with. Well, you know, and I found this is something I found very interesting in watching the documentary is that it seemed to go, it seems to go hand in hand as the decline of American clothing manufacturing has been on the increase over the years. So so has that idea of what a gentleman is. And when you talk about your grandfather and your father, I immediately, I think right. of, and you say the word gentleman, I think of my paternal grandfather, who mm-hmm. was one of the most gracious, you know, elegant men I have ever right. known in my life. With the clothes yeah. just so, they didn't have to be new, but you had no. something that was good, you, you had it made at a tailor, you had one good shirt, it lasted you 50 years. Right. And... Manners went hand in hand with that, 
And when you it, and yeah. looking at what you have put together here, I see that correlation and how maybe in some circles now we may see that hand-holding coming back. Right. And I, I really appreciate you saying that because some people um, have said, you know, have, have taken it at face value and said, well, well, that's kind of shallow that you're putting the way you dress in the same sentence as being a gentleman. Um, but I tend to think that it does matter and it doesn't take too much and how you present yourself and um, taking pride in the, in the way you look is part of being a gentleman. Um, it's not the most important thing. But uh, it's up there, so I, I appreciate you saying that. Oh, I mean, it, and when I stop and think about it, I mean, in my throughout my life, the same thing is applied. It, it will affect my attitude in, for myself. If right. I, if I put right. a jacket on or a blazer or a leather jacket, you know, in front of a camera or something, I'm going to sit straighter. I'm going, you know, mm-hmm. have more yeah. more composure and rapport than exactly. if I've got on a torn up t shirt. That I got at Target. No offense right. to Target. We all love Target. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that I know is going to fall apart within three to six months and, and land in, in the dustbin. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that, I, that thread I, I found particularly, you know, intriguing and, and resonant that you put Thank together. You. Yeah, I think it's important. And especially with social media and the, the lack of human contact these days and people texting instead of calling people or having face-to-face conversations. I think it's, um, it's important. We're losing that, uh, intimacy with, uh, with our communities. But what you also do is you give a, a beautiful, a mini history of manufacturing clothing goods in the United States, going back to the early Mm -hmm. 20th century when the decline started around the fifties or sixties. And, you know, then you also get in that great expert from USC talking about China and mm-hmm. the the GDP and durable goods and how undurable they really are right? and the cost efficiency. Right. So you bring an economics and history lesson into, you know, your themes here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And we didn't, we didn't want to um, pack the documentary with statistics or, or graphs. Um, we wanted the story to come from actual people and makers and let them tell the story. And that was always important to us in the editing process. How long was this process and how did you go about selecting which of those interview subjects from the various American companies um, you would include? The documentary took about two, two and a half years, um, probably two years of filming um, from when I was a senior at USC until last year. Mm-hmm. And I started the process with a couple store owners I knew, the store owner of a barber shop I went to in L.A., and then Union made a clothing store based in San Francisco. I started meeting these guys and through them met other people in this community of American-made uh, makers and manufacturers. And um, through that, I met a guy named Michael Williams from A Continuous Lean. And he has a list on his website of American makers. And I went through it and filtered it um, just to my own subjective point of view of, of who I liked. And we called these people and whoever we connected with and liked their story, we uh, we went and met up with them. And we went around the country and it was 
just an incredible experience right after college to travel and meet these people. What did, what was the reaction when you approached them and said, hi, I want to make a documentary and I want to do it about, you know, mm-hmm. men, the men's clothing and being made in America? Right. You know, I'm sure it probably caught some of them off guard. I think so. I think some were intrigued. I think some thought it was a student project and didn't know if it would go anywhere, um, which I understand. But uh, I think others really appreciated it, and for the most part, and that we were getting their stories out there because it's important, and they're not always told, especially in a, in a narrative and through film. There's a lot of articles and websites, but no one really shows their day-to-day. Mm-hmm. And you you have some incredible footage with so many of the of these companies, so many of these vendors of the actual mm-hmm. the hand tool process of what they do. Right, and a lot of that credit uh, goes to our cinematographer uh, Brandon Summerhalder. Our entire crew is from USC, and we spent hours and hours in these factories shooting B roll. Um, we probably spent an hour doing each interview, and then would stick around for two to three to four, um, sometimes half a day picking up shots. So we had a really good cohesive crew to get all that footage. Now, did you have your narrative developed when you went into the project or was no. this, it was developing as you were obtaining footage and interviews? Definitely. It, it, it developed and changed so many times. And our editor, uh, Vic Brown, we actually went through the three editors before we landed on him, and he really found the narrative um, in there. We always knew it would be about bringing back American-made goods and, um, I guess, having little portraits of each owner, um, but we didn't necessarily know how the narrative was going to play out and who was going to appear where in the film. Mm-hmm. So our editor helped out a lot with that. How did, you know, now, were you guys editing as you went, or did you wait until you had assimilated everything to start the editing we process? Yeah, I, I edited a little promos as we went, uh, but we waited until we had all the footage to really put it in, in like an hour-long narrative and, mm-hmm. and see what we could get. Yeah, I mean, it moves along at a nice clip, and your timing. Yeah, I was surprised when it ended. I was expecting even more. I know, I know. That's what some people said. So I guess, I guess that's a good thing, but uh, well, it's we definitely a, have a lot of footage. Well, it's a good thing because then it opens you up for like an hour and a half programming slot on, on cable somewhere. Right. You yeah. know, for distribution. Now, yeah, were, great. <laughs> did you? Was there anything surprising that you discovered while hmm. in the process of making this as a director and also you know, as as somebody who was curious enough about these topics to want to make this documentary? Yeah, I think what was surprising to me, which I guess I kind of expected, but it hit me in person, was meeting these people who took a risk and had other jobs and said, you know, I want to make this clothing item or I want to do what I'm passionate about and, and bring back a durable raincoat or distill wilderness perfumes and they really took a risk um and invested their own money in it and some of them are still are still working probably to uh to break even Mm -hmm. but they're they're giving back to their communities 
and they're happy and they're passionate and it's what they love doing. So I think one thing for me was that, you know what, if you really want to do it, you can. Um, you can find ways to do it. You can find people to help you. That, that really resonated with me. And then as a director, um, I think I'd go back to what you mentioned. I didn't really have a narrative in place before we set out on the journey. And it was really just opening my mind and allowing um, allowing myself not to have too much of a, an opinion. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think some, some mornings I'd wake up and say, have we got enough? You know, it's starting to wear on me. Um, I don't know if I'm as excited as I was. And then I'd meet a new person and I'd, I'd get all motivated again and want to meet more. Um, I think that was the best part of it. We started with 10 companies and was just going to do a West Coast trip. And we ended with close to 40 and went all around the U.S. I mean, it's just the variety of individuals that you speak with. And, you know, when, mm-hmm. pe- when people talk about, oh, nothing's made in America. No, there's plenty, plenty being made. Right, you know, right. just because we don't have Bob Hope commercials saying, you know, made mm-hmm. in the USA, which yeah. we really need those commercials again. Um, <laughs> but, <love> Bob Hope. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was one of the most successful Buy American campaigns ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Was when he was doing the Made in the USA commercials. Yeah. But yeah, I'm looking at, at some of the people, you know, it's like the companies that you talk to. I found some like the Freemans, the Freeman company, husband and wife. They're the, yeah, that's they're great. the that's the raincoat company, right? I mean, their story is just amazing. Yeah, the ingenuity that comes out that we see, and the inspiration of mm-hmm. you know, just because I wanted my husband to have a decent raincoat and I can't find one in the store. Right, it's as simple as that. You know, or shoemakers, or and then. Again, your your cinematographer with some of the imagery that he captures of the individual mm-hmm. lacing of you know of, right. of shoes and the the hand stitching on briefcases, mm-hmm. it it gives people a better sense of what craftsmanship is all about. Definitely, definitely. Was there any one company that stood out for you the most? Any one interview? Hmm. Mark Williamson, he's the owner of a hat store in Harlem. He was one of my favorite interviews in that it was a unique interview, and he he made me excited about um, doing the documentary about life and about, um, he really, uh, I guess, he made me feel like it was important what we were doing because of his energy, positive energy, his, his story. Um, he was just such an interesting person to meet, and especially going to Harlem to sit down with him was special for me because I love jazz and the history of jazz. And a lot of those old clubs have um, have since um, disappeared mm-hmm. since the heyday. And uh, talking to him about the community and why his stores in Harlem was uh, was really cool. I really I really loved that interview. So now, now that you've made it through your first featured documentary here, Greg, what, mm-hmm. is, what is next? Will you continue with documentaries? Will you move into narratives? Or will you just go a totally different way? I'm going to do one more documentary. We're in post right now for a documentary about 
six kids in Watts in South Central L.A. who um, are paired with uh, LAPD officers as their mentors. Um, they look after them, take care of them, um, mentor them. And uh, we're editing that, and I think it's really important, especially right now. I was going to say, but, so timely. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's going to be powerful. Um, but my real passion is in narrative, narrative period pieces. So I just wrote a script about four best friends um, in L.A., 1959, that go down to Central Avenue, which was the Harlem of the West Coast, mm-hmm. to experience a night there. And we're in development for that. So I, I hope to move to narratives. I kind of just fell into documentaries, but I think it, it will make me a stronger narrative director. Mm-hmm. And do you plan? And you are, and you're writing. So the the new one coming up, the do, the documentary you've written that one right. also. Yes, we we filmed that. Um, I directed that with a lot of the same team. Mm-hmm. We actually had five crews down there following each kid. Wow. And uh, and the LAPD twelve hours a day for a week. So it's going to be called A Week in Watts, and that will probably be out next year. Mm-hmm. And then um, the narrative piece will we'll film hopefully at the end of the year. And um, I'm really excited for that. Oh, my God. You're just, you're just plugging along here. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready to go. Ah, uh, well, you know, after seeing what you've done with Making the American Man and the themes and the, and the, that you bring out that stem from your original you know, genesis of an idea of mm-hmm. a gentleman. It's, you know, it's wonderful to see that, how that process worked and developed. And I can't thank you. I can't thank you enough for taking time today, Greg. This has been a real pleasure. I feel the same way. Uh, and I really hope when you get, when you get Weekend Watts, you will come back yes. on the show. Definitely. We'll stay in touch. Oh, please. Greg, okay. thank you so, so much. And everyone can see this on Netflix right now. It's on Netflix. All right. Thanks, Greg. Okay, have a good one. Bye-bye. And that was Greg Caruso, director, producer of Making the American Man. And you can see that on Netflix. And as you heard us say, it is only 61 minutes long. So it's not a whole lot of time. So it's definitely worth worth a little look-see. And we're going to take a break and come back and hear more from Matt Ross on Captain Fantastic. Hey, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers for Rad. I'm here to remind you that drunk drivers are still a major killer of young adults in this country. So always choose a designated driver. And remember, music lives, you should too. Getting on in the state of Mississippi. Papa was a copper and a mama was a hippie. A public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, Rad, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Hard at work for over 60 years, Dram Watering Tools have been the professional's choice for quality and durability. Now you can create the softest shower of rain. Nine water patterns for a variety of uses. Or a lush green playground. Quality you can depend on for a lifetime. Dram, the professional's choice for lawn and garden. Available at a fine garden center near you.
and welcome back to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lytus, uh, my trusty sound engineer cohort in there, Brian Leone. Um, two wonderful guests so far today, Mitchell Musso, an absolute joy. Uh, and again, for all of his fans, you know, he gave you all a very special shout out too. So you'll be able to hear that over and over again once we get the podcast out on iTunes tomorrow. Uh, or up online at AdrenalineRadio.com tonight or MovieSharkDeBlore.com tonight. Um, and then Greg Caruso, you can see Making the American Man. It's on Netflix now. Mitchell Musso's movie Characters with a Z is available tomorrow on multiple platforms. And that one, it is just tailor-made for the summer. It is great family summer fun. I mean, parents, there's no problem with, you know, having your kids, you know, elementary kids, junior high kids sitting out by the pool watching this. Um, No profanity. It's, you know, just it's very well done and it is family friendly. Um, And Mitchell's in it. So you can't go wrong. So let's get back to Captain Fantastic and Matt Ross. Uh, you know, and now Greg just made another good point while we were talking to him about his crew and the pe- and his friends and people he was working with on making the American man that he started with and met at USC. He's now done a second documentary, and many of those same people he's brought them back with him as collaborators. And as you heard earlier in the show, Matt Ross has expanded from doing everything himself to the the beauty and joy of collaboration. And one of those great collaborators on Captain Fantastic is cinematographer Stefan Fontaine. As you watch this unfold, the film starts in the Pacific Northwest when it is vibrant, it's beautiful, it's green, absolutely stunning. And as the family descends from the mountains and travels through the United States into the down into southern U.S., uh, southern West Coast, we see the lens, the camera lens. Stefan opens it up wider. The palette softens. And we see the, the kids as if we're experiencing for the same time the wide-eyed wonder of what this country is when you look at it, but also how overwhelming it can be. And it's a very gifted cinematographer that can do that with the lensing and add his own layer of storytelling to the overall film. So I had a chance to talk to, I asked Matt about working with Stefan and what they developed. Stefan and I talked a lot about, I mean, I had a list of people I wanted to work with and, and, and I'm a film geek. So I, I know I can tell you the DPs that is work I love. And mm-hmm. Stefan was certainly the top of my list. And, uh, I talked to a bunch of different people and just like not, not every actor is right for every role for a variety of reasons. And we all like to think we can do anything, but sometimes people are more specific to something. I think it's true for DPs. And what I was looking for was if you look at Stefan's work, if you look at a prophet or Rustin bone, I was thinking, yeah, Rustin you know, he has, he has luminous photography and yet it's also very organic. And sometimes those things are mutually exclusive. We can point to certain filmmakers who make, um, their film is very, the, the cinematography is very presentational or it's very um, composition, the compositional quality of it is very specific, but it, it's luminous, but it doesn't feel organic. Stefan has both, you know, uh, and he also is, he has an organic way of working, which is well, the way same way I work, and I didn't know this going in, but I suspected it based on his work. He's just a great storyteller with his camera. Mm-hmm. He is a great intuitive 
storyteller and he if you're if you do something if you write something on your notebook in a way you never had before and you just did it one time and and it tells a story about who you are he won't miss it he yeah he'll find it. it he'll find it just because he has that he's so in tune with what you're doing and mm-hmm. so you know we talked a great deal about how we wanted to make the movie and we had uh, ideas and some of them changed and many of them changed as we went along and you know, I, I say this about him, and I, I, I don't think he'd mind that. I I really believe that we're all fumbling around in the dark, and I, you know, it's said of directors a lot. Oh, they know exactly what they want, and I always feel like if you know what you want exactly, then you're propping up a preconceived dead idea of what something could be. And instead, you're bringing all these people, and this is the moment we have to make this thing, just like this interview. Mm-hmm. You have some questions, but depending on how I react or what I say leads our interview in one way or the other, it might spark an idea with Which you. Which is why if I you, never write a question. Right, and if you, or if you had stuck, if you'd only <laughs> stuck to your questions, then we'd only ever have what you thought of. But if I say something, and you're present, and it sparks an idea, and you're like, oh, I want to ask that, and then we're having an organic dialogue and I think filmmaking can be the same thing sometimes the the photography can't be that if I'm if it's if it's an action sequence and while you're talking my hand is slowly going towards the gun that's here and then well that that has to be preconceived right we, we need to know that there needs to be a close-up of my hand revealing the gun mm-hmm. but then cut to your eyes and you don't see that those are things that probably are preconceived right. and they're not necessarily something that we find on the fly but in this kind of filmmaking, we I, li- I like to be open to what the actors bring, and then we I have a shot list, or I have I moments that I know I want to that are important for the storytelling. But I like to be elastic, and I like and Stefan likes to work that way too. And I like to oh Vigo is doing something that I hadn't thought of, and I that's going to change how we're going to photograph him, and and so it's an ongoing kind of. Yeah, because the metaphor through through the photography is just absolutely gorgeous. That's good. You know, as as we're traveling through the country and the lens gets wider, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, it's softened, mm-hmm. but the lens keeps getting wider yeah. as the worlds of the children are expanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, that, and some of that is tweaked slightly with color timing. I mean, Stefan yeah. will say things like, you know, n- n- now with digital photography, and we talked a lot about shooting on film, and I, I love film. I'm not. I'm not. Um, I, I don't. I'm not as dogmatic about it as some people. I, I think that they both are mediums and they both have their use. Uh, but color timing has become a very uh, powerful tool now yeah. in with digital cinematography. I didn't want to ever turn off the camera around the kids, and there's a there's a problem with film in that regard because you have to change the mags. And, and with digital, you can shoot, 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 shoot. And I kind of wanted to do that. I wanted to find. I wanted to capture moments. I wanted to find... I wanted to allow the kids to forget they're on camera. And that happened. I mean, there's a moment when Charlie picks his nose. He's not picking his nose because he thinks it's an acting choice. He's picking his nose because he forgot he's on camera. So I'm actually capturing a a seven-year-old's organic Mm -hmm. behavior. So that was one reason. But... um, so the color timing, we, we, you know, like in the supermarket, we color time that so that it's very fluorescent, very bright, very mm-hmm. white, and the pop of all the colors, an inorganic environment. And, you know, uh, he Stefan's making certain adjustments knowing we're going to do that, but then some of that is, it happens in post. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have a great colorist, and that helps. Well, and as I mentioned earlier in the show, another part of Matt's team that is absolutely great is his costumer, Courtney Hoffman. So, take a listen to what Matt has Matt had to say about the costume design of Captain Fantastic. And then the costume design, you know, I was 
I, I was very open to Courtney's ideas. You know, I met a lot of costume designers, and some of them had great lookbooks. Courtney was the most enthusiastic, and I felt like her take on it was the most uh, creative in many respects. And I loved talking to her about the script and working with her, and she... You know, it changed a little bit in the beginning. I think that I had written that they had worn more uh, animal skins, and they were there was, there was a little bit more of a primitive quality that you see when they're hunting, but you don't see so much in the movie. But the one of the real things that happens is it's a road trip, so they don't, and it doesn't take over that many days, so they don't have that many costume changes. And, right. You know, but like the, the red suit, that was her idea. That wasn't in the script. I think I had a vague idea that <laughs> he had worn a like. His idea was he was going to wear. Um, some vintage suit that he bought for five bucks, you know, and and she thought, well, what if this is the suit that he was married in? What if he was going to wear to the funeral what he married? Well, that's a great idea. And then we photographed that and we put those photographs around the house and, you know, all these people are riffing off what you've written mm-hmm. and, and hopefully they're making it better and people like Courtney do. And I know Courtney, she prides herself in being a treasure hunter. She is. With thrift shops and... She did things like, she did things that like when I was editing it, I didn't even realize things that she had done, the detail with which she had done things like some of the younger kids and I, I think it's one of the girls Sammy Isler or um, or uh, Annalise Basso the two teenage the twins mm-hmm. one of them is wearing a jacket that says Bodovin or one of the other ones is wearing and that's so it's like the idea that that was their older brother's jacket that got, that they got handed out little things like that and, the, and the, you can the, see hand stitching oh absolutely the I mean the detail is phenomenal and, yeah. I, and I actually feel like I did her a disservice insofar as I don't you don't see enough of it because there's such a richness to her storytelling and that's really what it is actors are storytellers costume designers are storytellers we're all showing up to tell the story you can say storyteller or filmmaker it's the same thing we're all showing up to riff on this story and and they are telling stories through their art and again captain fantastic is in theaters now it expands wider this friday um before quickly before we go, I just have to point out, sitting here, you'll see it on the video, is the fabulous book, The Infiltrator by Robert Mazur. Um, movie comes out, stars Brian Cranston. It opens on the 12th. It opens Wednesday. You're going to hear some of my interview with director Brad Furman next week. And in, we're going to have Dylan Walsh next week. You know him best from Nip Tuck. Dylan is out with a new movie called Sea Street. He will be here. And Mike Dopod. Uh, Virtual Revolution is his big film, and he's got so many other things. We're waiting to see if he's in the country, if he's going to be here, or if he's going to be calling in. But we've got two gorgeous guys as guests next week, so I'm very happy. Until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm-hmm.